All right, as you're having a seat, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1. Uh, if you've been around here for a while, you know that I, I, like, uh, I like data, I like statistics, I like to use uh, illustrations, and um, you probably think, well, of course, he's an economics major, so he likes that, but actually, it goes way, way back. Even when I was a kid, I liked data, I liked numbers, I thought it was very interesting. My, uh, my hockey league, even as a kid, they would keep data on, on all of our games, right? So you could look at your statistics, and you could pick, compare the other players in the league, and the other teams, and how you were doing, and goals and assists, and your goalies on saves, and different stuff like that, but in my baseball league... Uh, they didn't keep stats, so I kept my own. Right? I kept my own statistics. I didn't keep them for the whole team, but I had all of my, all of my data for how I did in, in every game. And uh, right now you're going, wow, what a weird kid. But, you know, to each his own. I just, I just I like the numbers, and I like seeing the change and the progress or whatever. I just thought it was kind of cool. But I had a, a, an aha moment, uh, even as a kid, after one of our games. I played a really, really good game. Right? So my stats were awesome. Uh, I think uh, every time that I got up to bat, I got on base. So I either got a hit or I got a walk. Uh, I fielded several ground balls from third base. I actually got a steal during the game. So my stats were perfect, awesome, stellar. But uh, no one else was celebrating because we lost the game. But I, and I had just one of those moments as a kid, and you know it seems obvious now, but I, I had that moment where I finally realized, okay, well, uh, baseball is a team sport, and the only statistic that actually matters is win or loss, you know, and we win together, we lose together, and no one else could celebrate, no matter how great my statistics were, they weren't patting me on the back, they were dejected because we had lost. And I began to learn and apply that principle through life, and what I discovered is this, life's a team sport. Life is a team sport. And, you know, if you're an introvert or a loner right now, you're going, "Uh, I don't know so much about that. But I know no matter who you are, there are people in your life that affect you and people whom you affect. And the closer you get, the more you affect one another. And, you know, that's actually by God's design. Whether it's family or friends or roommates or coworkers, but I would argue even especially in the body of Christ, God designed us to affect each other and to need each other and to be influenced by one another. In other words, we're designed to win or to lose together in the body of Christ. And so what Paul has been telling us in Ephesians 1 through 3 is this. We are one. We are, we're, we're one body. We're one temple. We are one family. We are one new humanity. That's just a fact. That's a truth. And, and all of 1 through 3, it's, it's theology. It's laying that foundation. And now in chapters 4 through 6, he's going to say this. Now here's how to live as one. Here's how to really experience that oneness and to live out that oneness in front of the world that's watching. Because that's God's design for the church. So I want us to read together, beginning in chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Right? 4-1 is the transition verse. And he starts with therefore. Therefore points us back to all of chapters 1 through 3. And Paul summarizes chapters 1 through 3 with one word, and it's the word calling. He says, therefore, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. What's he talking about? Well, he summarizes that calling in a sense in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. All of you probably know these verses really well. It says this, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. It's not as a result of works so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Paul says, each and every one of you have been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, by grace through faith. You didn't earn it, you didn't deserve it, but instead God put his son in human flesh to come and live on your behalf and die on your behalf so that you could have your debt of sins removed and have eternal life. You're reconciled vertically. We talked about this. There's vertical reconciliation with God. Now as a result of that, you can be reconciled to one another. And in the cross of Christ, it's not just that he paid the penalty for each and every one of our sins individually. It's that he broke down this barrier of the dividing wall between us, the hostility, so that we could become one new humanity. So regardless of whether you're male or female or old or young or black or white or Asian or Hispanic, whether you're rich or poor or slave or free, all of you can now become one in Christ, which is radically different from the way that all of the rest of humanity operates. You're reconciled to God, and now you can be reconciled to one another so that God can take you, this new, beautiful humanity, and show it to the rest of the world and say, this is what I designed for men and women. And as they see us, the church, beautiful before their eyes, they say, i got to be a part of that because that's not what my relationships are like. I need that. I long for that. In my relationships, I have anger and strife and hatred and jealousy, and we can't resolve anything. There's unforgiveness. I want to be a part of this community. I need what Jesus Christ has to offer. So Paul says, therefore, having been reconciled to God and to one another, live out your lives or walk in a manner worthy of that calling. And he uses a beautiful metaphor here. The word for worthy means balance the scales. Here's your calling on one hand, all of the riches that you have in Christ, and your walk or your life on the other. That is, live in a manner that balances the scales of all of these riches that you have. And maybe you notice that chapter 3 actually ends with a prayer. And it says, now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we can ask or imagine. Let's give him all of the credit. Because if we as the church are going to actually live in a manner that balances the scales with our calling, we can't do that. Right? This is not something that we can accomplish On our own, but this is God's design for the church. Listen to his words in chapter 3, verse 10. He says, This is why I formed the church, so that the manifold or the multifaceted beauty of the wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. That is, it's not just the world that's watching, but it's all of the cosmos. How can this happen? Bill Hybels once wrote, The local church is the hope of the world. The hope of the world is not government, academia, business, but the church because it is to the church that God has entrusted the message of salvation, which truly changes people's lives and hearts. Not just their behaviors, but it transforms the things that they love and reconciles their relationships in such a way that the world says, i got to have that. That's why Jesus said, "You're, you're the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Your city set on the hill, you, you cannot be hidden. You're bright and beautiful and warm and wonderful. I will build my church and the gates of Hades will never prevail against it. It's going to be an amazing thing. It's a beautiful thing. How church, how do we how do we become like that? Here's your first statistic for the morning. Okay. 2016, Gallup poll in the United States discovered that amongst Americans, 72% believe that the church is declining in influence on the culture. 72% of Americans believe the church really no longer matters. The church's question for us is, 
How do we once again become the hope of the world? How do we live together as one, live in such a way that we display Jesus Christ through our relationships? Read with me again, chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, I beg you, live out your lives. Walk in a manner that is worthy. That is, it balances the scales between your calling and your conduct. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul says, first do this. Guard the unity that you have in Jesus Christ. You must protect and guard the unity that God has given you in Jesus Christ. You are one, but you're going to have to protect that oneness. How do you do that? Well, first, unity requires sacrifice. If we are going to live out as one and we're going to remain as one and we're going to display that oneness to the world, we have to realize it will require sacrifice from us. Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Paul says first, with all humility. Not a little humility, not some humility, but all humility. Wow. Let that sink in for just a moment. He says everything that you do in life, let it always be done with all humility. He says the same thing, but kind of in a negative way in Philippians 2 verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with all humility. All humility. You know, the word humility actually never shows up in Greek literature until the New Testament times. The reason for that is humility was not regarded as a virtue. In fact, shortly after Paul would write this, Epictetus would declare that humility is not a characteristic that any man should pursue. But the church is proclaiming of the highest of virtues, Paul says, let me start in this place. Go low. And then he uses a synonym. He says, with all humility and with all gentleness. Gentleness is kind of a, a, a mild translation. It means essentially this. Not being overly impressed with your own importance. Go low. Don't be self-impressed. But instead, be patient. That is, be uh, long of fuse. Bearing up under provocation. Surrendering and sacrificing your rights. And my translation says, being tolerant of one another. Literally, it is put up with each other. (laughs) It's not very glamorous, is it? Put up with each other. Uh, You don't get to choose your family, do you? You just kind of all get thrown in together and same thing in the church. And so he says, put up with one another, but not begrudgingly, in love. In love, genuinely learn to place one another's needs and desires above your own. Let's read the rest of uh, chapter 2, verse 3, Philippians. He says, do nothing, absolutely nothing, from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Easier said than done, isn't it, church? But this is what helps preserve the unity of the church. When I say your needs and your desires are more important than my own. In fact, I'm going to make sacrifices, things that I need and desire, in order for you to be served. I'm going to go low. I'm going to go first. I'm going to serve. I'm going to be gentle. I'm going to be long of fuse. I'm going to be patient and kind. Can I do this on my own? Absolutely and utterly not. The unity that God describes that the church should have is not something that we can accomplish in our own strength. That's why chapter 3 ends in a prayer. Not a him who's able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or even imagine. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations. Amen and amen. 
You can't do this on your own. But if the church is going to be what the church is designed to be, it begins with sacrifice from us. Second, Paul says, unity requires defending. Verse 3, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The word for preserve is in the noun form is a word for a guard. Make every effort to guard and protect this unity. Why? Because Satan wants to divide you. In fact, that is his primary scheme against the church. <coughs> Excuse me. Most of the time, heresy is, hard, is pretty easy to spot. But little disagreements, demanding of our rights, expecting the other person to go first, those things just slowly work their way into our relationships, and thus Satan divides the church. And then we begin to behave just like the world, and nothing sets us apart. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul began his letter to the church in Corinth like this. He said, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Why did he write that to the church in Corinth? Because they were a horribly fractured church. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter. Oh yeah, well, I'm of Jesus. <laughs> well, that's, that trumps all. But they were just completely fractured. And so when Paul visited the church in Corinth, what he realized is they don't stand out among the culture. They don't look any different from the culture around them. And so he begins with this very point. He says, do you not realize that Satan's design for you is to divide you and separate you and create friction and conflict and envy and strife among you? You have to guard and defend the unity of the church. Why? Because that's the number one distinctive of the church. It's natural and normal to not get along. It's supernatural to forgive and to be patient and to be kind and to put up with provocation after provocation after provocation. It's, it's supernatural to surrender my rights to your rights. In fact, Jesus put it like this to his disciples. He said, by this will all men know that you're my disciples. How? If you have love for one another. Did the disciples always get along? <laughs> Absolutely not, right? There was conflict. And as Jesus is about to depart, he's like, please, children, I need you to learn to love one another. Because this is what will set you apart in the world. So his final prayer, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, was this. I ask that they may all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Father, you're in me and I'm in you. And Father, Son, and Spirit, we enjoyed this perfect harmony of relationships for all of eternity. That's all I want for them. That's what I want for them. Why? So that the world will see the way that they interact and they'll believe that you sent me. So that they will look at the body of Christ and they will be drawn to Jesus Christ because we, in fact, are different. Unity requires defending. Why? Because Satan is constantly trying to destroy the church through disunity. I want you to turn with me to the book of Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, verse 5. Paul wrote lots of letters in the New Testament, and it was almost always because there was a problem, right? In Corinth, you had not just division, but they had uh, had immorality, and they had drunkenness, and they had gluttony, and they were using their spiritual gifts for self-promotion. And then Galatia, they were uh, distorting the gospel of Jesus Christ, and so he had to go after them for that. Uh, Thessalonians, they didn't really understand what happened after death, and so they were discouraged and fearful, so he teaches them about that. So there's always some issue or problem or doctrine, whatever. In Philippians, there's really no problem. 
In fact, the letter to the Philippians is this thank you letter for participating in the gospel. Paul says, thank you for participating. Now, I want you to continue to be this church of influence. But if that's going to happen, one thing must be certain, and that is that with humility, you continue to serve one another and remain unified around the gospel of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, Satan will pull you apart and you won't have influence as a church. So, in verse 5, he says this. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even a cross death. Paul says, if you are going to continue to be a church that influences the culture around you, and it influences the nations around you, you must follow the attitude of Jesus Christ, who, although he was eternally the Son of God and enjoyed perfect fellowship with Father and Spirit, instead he chose to humble himself by taking on human form, and not just human form, but the form of a slave. And he served and he sacrificed and he washed his disciples' feet and he scrubbed out all the dirt between their toes. And if that wasn't enough, he allowed himself to be beaten and hung on a cross, and he suffered and died. And he says, this church is what creates unity and beauty amongst you for the world. I had a friend a few years ago who was in conflict with a coworker. He was in a ministry, and it was conflict with his boss. And he, really, he, didn't, he didn't agree with the direction that his boss was going. And he was completely convinced that he had a better idea of where they should go. And this relationship uh, began to get kind of sideways. And it began to affect the other relationships in their office and throughout their region. And my friend finally had a moment with the Lord. He realized, you know, it it really doesn't matter if I'm right. Because God has placed this man in authority over me. And my job is to humble myself and serve him. And so he went into this man's office and he literally took a bowl and a towel and got down on his hands and knees and he washed his feet. And he said, please forgive me. How can I serve you? That got his boss's attention. Reconciled their relationship, and that began to reconcile the relationships around them. Men and women, what would it look like in your relationship, right, with, with friends or with family members, if you, if you went low first? Right? Rather than waiting for someone to initiate with you, rather than demanding your rights or demanding that you are right, instead you got low like Jesus as a servant, and maybe, maybe even literally, took water and towel and washed the feet of those with whom you're in conflict and reconciled and said, you know, what's more important than anything is our unity in Jesus Christ. Please forgive me. How can I serve you? That's radical. The world doesn't do that. But the church does. The church does. And so Paul says, unity requires defending, and we defend it when we sacrifice, when we serve, when we seek forgiveness, and we seek reconciliation with one another. Third, Paul says, unity requires discernment. Verse 3. For there is, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, because there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were also called in one hope of your calling, One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. 
Unity requires discernment because unity is not our goal. Unity is a result. We We don't pursue unity for the sake of unity. We can't sacrifice truth for the sake of unity. We pursue Jesus Christ together, and if we're all pursuing Christ together, we discover we are, in fact, unified. So we can't sacrifice or surrender the fundamental core truths about Jesus Christ, which are the thing which draws us together. So Paul focuses our attention here on these, these fundamental ideas that make the church the church. Notice what he says. He says, there is just one body. That is, there, there's only one church. That's why we write it with a capital C when we're talking about the church. Not the local church, not Grace Bible Church or Living Hope Baptist Church or Westminster Presbyterian Church, but the church, capital C. And that's all of us. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, by grace through faith in Christ alone, you belong to the church. There's just one body, Paul says. And there's one spirit. Who is the one who regenerates individuals and draws all into this one body? Well, just one spirit. That's why there can be just one church. Just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. That is, you were called by grace through faith to Jesus Christ. So there is one Lord. That is, Jesus is the one who is sovereign over each and every individual church and over all churches and over the church. I'm not, for sure. Our elders are not. We all serve under the authority of Jesus Christ. There's just one Lord. Because there's just one faith, there's one baptism, which doesn't refer to sprinkling or immersion. It's talking about the baptism of the Spirit, by which the Spirit brings you into this one body, which is the church. Consequently, there's just one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. He gets all the credit. He gets all the praise. So we unify around the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, I think that's why some of these barriers are beginning to drop between local churches in our community is because we've actually sat at the same table and we have stated, we all agree on the gospel. A person is saved by grace through faith, faith alone in Christ alone. Are there other theological issues that are important to us? Yeah, but they're not that important. Right? They're, they're not worth dividing over because we're unified in Jesus Christ. You know, I personally, like, I, I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. And I really hope I'm right because I don't want to be here. Right? When things go really bad, I want to I say, yeah, I'm right. I'm right on that. But I could be wrong. I'm not going to divide with other believers over a secondary issue. But that requires discernment. What are the primary issues and what are the secondary issues? What's primary? There's just one Lord and it's Jesus Christ and he's over all. There's just one God and Father. And Son and Spirit, who's over all and through all and in all. And just one Savior, Jesus, who took on human flesh and died on your behalf so that you could have life that lasts forever. Do we agree on that? All in? Go Jesus, right? And we're all, man, we're just right there. There we are. We're, we're, we're unified. Not because we pursued unity, but because we pursued Jesus Christ together. And that's what makes us one. And you are one. But Paul says you have to learn to live as one. And you have to understand that that unity, which creates beauty for the church, is constantly going to be under attack. And so what he'll do in the rest of chapters 4, 5, and 6 is he'll give instructions. Here's how to live as one in all of your relationships. So first practical application Paul will give is this. We grow our unity through the graces that God puts in each of our lives. And I'll explain what I mean by that in just a moment. Read with me chapter 4, verse 7. Paul says, There's just one, in God, one God and Father who's over all, through all, and in all. But to each one of us is given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. 
What's he talking about? What's the grace that he's referring to there? Remember, grace means undeserved or unmerited favor, right? It's the blessing of God given to you. You don't deserve it, but he pours it out upon you. And he manifests that undeserved favor in lots of different ways in each of our lives. Chapter 3, verse 8. Paul says, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given, that is, to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Paul says, One of the ways that God shows his grace in my life is I get to preach to people who've never heard the gospel. That's God's grace. Now Paul says here that there are are other ways that God shows his grace. He gives you gifts. He gives you gifts. Undeserved, free, beautiful, valuable gifts. He's talking about spiritual gifts. Peter refers to this in 1 Peter chapter 4. He says, As each one has received a special gift, Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of what? Of the manifold or multifaceted grace of God. Grace of God says it's like a diamond. And every way you turn it, it reflects a a beautiful and, and wonderful color, which is the grace of God. The grace of God in your life is a gift or multiple gifts. These are gifts of the Spirit. Paul actually uses two words in Greek to describe them. One is pneumatikoi, which means a manifestation of the Spirit of God. Evidence of the Spirit of God in your life is an empowerment, or a charismata. That is a manifestation of the grace, the unmerited favor of God in your life is this this enablement for you to supernaturally serve the church and the world and draw people into the body of Christ through these skills and talents and abilities that God has given you, right? So pneumatic or charismata, evidences of grace, evidences or manifestations of the Holy Spirit in your life, and everybody has these. Now, um, this is just an illustration. I don't, I don't expect you to scribble down real fast and try and write all these down. Uh, the slides will be posted on the internet, so if you want to go back and look at these. I, I, this is just for an illustration. There are uh, six lists in the New Testament. Five of them are from Paul. One is from Peter. And what I want you to notice is that there are lots of things listed, and none of these lists is exactly the same. They're not even the same length. In fact, my favorite is Peter's because he just synthesizes, and I'm kind of a synthesis guy. Just two things, speaking or serving. The point is this. The lists are not exhaustive. Otherwise, they would all be exactly the same. They're not intended to show you each and every possible spiritual gift. They're just illustrative of the kinds of things that God deposits in your life to allow you to supernaturally serve and build up the body of Christ and draw people into the body of Christ. Right? These are the kinds of things that God gives. And maybe you look at this list, if you're close enough, you can read it, and you go, man, I don't, I don't see myself anywhere there. I don't, I don't have any of these. Or maybe I'm, maybe I'm just not a gifted person at all. Well, um, good news for you this morning is that you're wrong. And it's my privilege to tell you that you're wrong. Right? You, you're absolutely and utterly completely wrong. Okay? Read chapter 4, verse 7 again. Paul says this. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Absolutely every single person is gifted by God's Spirit. How do you, how do you discover these things? Well, what do you love to do? What do you love to do? What do you naturally love to do that can be a blessing to somebody else? What do, you, what do you love to do that meets a need in the body of Christ? What do you love to do that meets a need out in a broken and fallen world? Well, that's your first clue. These are things that 
probably God has placed within you to bless the body of Christ and to bless the world. Let me illustrate. Uh, my uh, mom's spiritual gift, well, she probably has multiple. I know she has multiple, but one of hers is hospitality. Uh, my mom just has a capacity to create an environment in which people just feel welcomed and loved and they feel safe and they feel well-fed, right? Because it's always great food. I mean, that's my mom. One of her greatest spiritual gifts is hospitality. She's just a gatherer of people and she makes this atmosphere in which people love to be with one another. Now, on the other hand, if I said, hey, mom, I've got a little extra time in my sermon. Do you want to come up and say anything? And be like, Psh, you'd hear the doors slamming, right? No way. Now, the fact is she probably would do a really wonderful job, but that is not what she likes to do. My wife, uh, one of her spiritual gifts is evangelism. It's amazing, right? I mean, I don't, anywhere, everywhere we go, she's going to be in a conversation with somebody she's never met before, and it's almost guaranteed that they're going to talk about Jesus. You know, it's just, it's a remarkable thing. That's why we take two cars. Because I know, I'm like, where's your mom? I don't know. She'll, she'll, she'll finish, she'll come around, right? And then she's going to come back and tell me this story about this supernatural conversation. She's really natural and normal. Now, that's not my spiritual gift. I, I would say I love to share the gospel. And I love looking for those opportunities. But it's just so natural for her because God made it natural for her. It's a supernatural empowerment. Pat Coyle, he's got a spiritual gift of administration. He's an administrative leader. Right? He can think about all the steps that need to take place to make this thing happen. Right? So I come in to his office and I just, I like to, I just dream. I just start throwing ideas. I'm like, oh, let's think about that. And Pat's the guy, he'll say to me, no. No, that can't be done. Or, no, that, okay, that can be done, but we've got to line these things up. And I've learned to really appreciate and value that skill in him. Blake Jennings. You guys ever heard Blake teach before? Yeah, he's not bad. And Blake is really good, right? I, I enjoy, I learn. When I listen to Blake, I learn. I love listening to Blake. He, Blake's spiritual gift is teaching. He was an intern with me years ago before he got, went to seminary and got into ministry. And I would have him do leaders meeting with our, we had some adult leaders who were leading college ministry stuff. And uh, they were all kind of mixed together. And afterwards, the adults would all come up to me and they'd say, you know, that, that young man, man he, he can really teach. I go, I, I know, I know. I'm, I can see it too. It's a spiritual gift. Zach, Nigliauzi, you know what Zach's good at? Just about everything. I mean, not, not one person has all of the gifts, but Zach is an interesting person because he can actually do a little bit of everything. And what that does for him is he has this capacity to see what others are good at and help you find your place to serve. That's what makes him a great campus pastor. Right, my point is this, everybody is gifted. And maybe you hear me say that and you go, oh man, I'm, I'm already exhausted and you're just asking me to do more. And that is exactly the opposite of what I'm trying to communicate. What I want for you is that you discover those things in your life that give you life. Right? That, don't, that don't feel heavy and burdensome. I mean, sometimes it's sacrifice and it's burden and it's a, it's, it's a struggle, but most of the time, it's, you know, this is how God has made me, and I, I derive life, and people experience blessing from that. That's what I want for you. And let me tell you, this is why I think it's so very important that we discover our gifts. You can't, you can't really become mature until you discover and begin to use your gifts. And honestly, I can't actually become mature until you discover and begin to use your gifts. Because 
God made me deficient in areas so that I would need you. And he made you deficient in areas so that you would need me. And he made you different from me so that we would learn to value one another and what each person brings. Right? We, we're designed to be inadequate on our own. So until each and every one of us discovers and begins to use our spiritual gifts, we all will suffer. We can't say that we are mature apart from 100% participation in discovering and using our spiritual gifts. So best illustration of this uh, that's ever existed, and I think actually it's why it was made, is uh, Mr. Potato Head. Okay? So here's Mr. Potato Head. It's like one of the best uh, toys that's ever been invented. Right? And when all of the Mr. Potato Head parts are present and they are placed in the right spot, Mr. Potato Head, he becomes the perfect toy, right? He, he becomes all that Mr. Potato Head was designed to be originally, right? However, ah, Mr. Potato Head has no legs, right? He can't get up and be Mr. Potato Head fully and completely for the world because he has no legs. Legs didn't show up. Legs didn't figure out what they were designed to do, and so they just didn't come. So, uh, Mr. Potato Head, he's, he's, he's off, right? He's just, he doesn't look quite right. Or, Everybody decides, no, I, I don't like my spot. I want to be in somebody else's spot. Everybody decides, I want to be in here. And so Mr. Potato Head, he, he, still, he just doesn't look quite right, does he? Or they say, no, I want to be on top. I'm not willing to find my place and serve in my place. And now Mr. Potato Head isn't looking like Mr. Potato Head should look. But when each and every one of us find how God has made us and we plug in, we begin to, to energetically serve according to our gifting, Mr. Potato Head is all that Mr. Potato Head was designed to be. And my point is this, church, we are Mr. Potato Head. We're Mr. Potato Head. So I want to read to you uh, the Mr. Potato Head chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, all right? 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And you can just write there in the margin, Mr. Potato Head. Okay, so chapter 12, verse 14. Paul says, For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed each of the members, each and every one of them, in the body, just as he desired. And so we each have to figure out how has God made us? And where is that intersection between the things that bring us joy in life and the needs of the body of Christ and the needs of the world? These are our gifts. And we can't be mature until each and every one of us does this. Now, second reason I think this is important is because there was a price that was paid to give you the gifts or the graces that God has placed in your life. Go back to Ephesians chapter 4 with me again, and let's read verse 7. Paul writes, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. Now, there's a prof at Dallas Theological Seminary who did his dissertation on these three verses, right? Chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. So for three years, 
He studied uh, chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. And um, I happen to agree with his conclusions, but the good news is it only took me about an hour. <laughs> I didn't spend three years having to, to churn through this. It's actually a, a pretty simple illustration. And uh, maybe you've read these verses before and you go, what exactly is Paul talking about? Well, let me see if I can explain it quickly to you. Paul uses Psalm 68 as an illustration. Uh, he doesn't exactly quote it. What he does is he, he quotes part of, parts of it and changes some of the things just to make an illustration. In Psalm 68, the idea is this. It's a, it's a, it's a victory psalm. Right? A king of Israel has conquered his enemies, and now he's bringing the spoils of battle back into Jerusalem, and he presents them as an offering to God. And Paul says this, basically saying, to the victor belong the spoils. And so Jesus Christ descended into the lower parts of the earth. That is, he died. He really genuinely died. He lived a full life, but then he went into the lower parts of the earth. That is, he went into the grave. But if he went into the grave, also we know that he was raised out of the dead. That is, he ascended. There was a resurrection, there was an ascension. And because of his death and burial and resurrection, he conquered his enemies. That is, he conquered sin and death. The captives were taken captive, right? Captivity was was captured. Jesus' enemies were crushed. Sin and death was removed. And because he, he was victorious over his enemies and he was ascended and he, he sat at the right hand of the throne of God, God said, now I want you to take the spoils of victory and distribute them to all of your people. That is, I give you the privilege of spreading out the Spirit of God and putting the Spirit of God in each and every one of your followers. Give gifts to men. Right? At the price of the life of Christ, you are empowered by the Holy Spirit. Right? Every, all these spiritual gifts we're talking about cost Jesus Christ suffering and death on your behalf. And if you've been given such a great and wonderful gift, don't you, don't you long to discover it and use it? It's so valuable. Okay, let me illustrate for you. Uh, any of you ladies familiar with uh, David Gardner's? Anybody? Anybody? Okay, yeah. You can whoop and cheer if you'd like. Um, Really nice jeweler here in town. I want you just to imagine for a moment. Maybe this takes more imagination for some of you ladies than others. But imagine that your husband or boyfriend or fiancé goes to David Gardner's and buys you a beautiful piece of jewelry. Or, or maybe even it's somebody who, it's not a boyfriend or a, a father. Or maybe it's a, a brother, <coughs> Ben Fisher, who buys some, something nice at David Gardner's for his sister. <coughs> and enjoy. I mean, that'd be a rem- remarkable thing, right? And if, you know, if you've ever seen a gift from David Gardner's, the, the jewelry's beautiful, but the wrapping is pretty amazing too, right? I mean, they know how to wrap a present. Uh, I can't say that I bought lots of stuff from David Gardner's, but I, you know, saved my pennies and I bought a couple little things for Trish through the years. And, you know, it comes really, really nicely packaged. So imagine that uh, your husband or boyfriend or fiance brings you this gift from David Gardner's. Would you look at this and say, wow, you know, that wrapping is just so beautiful. I don't think I can tear it. Let me just put the gift here on the counter next to the sink and enjoy the wrapping. No, I mean, you get that, you go, I mean, there's just ribbons and paper, just they're shredded, they're flying, right? Because inside is what's valuable and you tear open the package, you look at the jewelry, you you give them a kiss and say, thank you. And you put it on and then you go, let me make sure the world sees this, right? Oh, yes, I did actually just get something from David Gardner's. Yeah, I did. Oh, did you notice? I didn't know if you would notice this beautiful piece of jewelry, right? You're not going to leave it in the package. You're going to shred the package, put it on, wear it, so that everyone can see what you have been given. 
how much more so a gift that was purchased for you by the blood of Jesus Christ? Wouldn't you want to say, let me find out what's inside of this thing, tear it open and put it on so that all of the world can see. Your spiritual gifts are just like that. Given to you, Paul says, so that we can all grow up into maturity. Because you can't become fully mature apart from discovering and using your gifts for the body of Christ. And I can't become fully mature apart from you discovering your gifts and using them for the body of Christ. You need me and I need you. We are different by design. Let's celebrate that. We're deficient by design. We need one another. And the closer we draw to one another, the more the unity of the body of Christ around the gospel of Jesus Christ becomes clear to the world. And the world says, that's beautiful. I've got to be part of that. And so my challenge to you, church, is this. First, okay, first application is this. I want to challenge you to pray for the church in this community. Right? Not just our church, but the church. Capital C. All of the churches individually pray for the unity of the body of Christ. One of the things that turns people away from Christianity more than anything else is when they see us not getting along. But fighting with one another or talking badly about one another Pray that we would become unified around the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pray that the gospel that's preached in every church would be clear and would be consistent and it would be biblical. And that as a result, we would all become unified around the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then as, as those barriers begin to fall and relationships become reconciled, people would say, you know, that's not like the world. How did that happen? I've got to find out. Right? Let's pray for the unity of the body of Christ in our community. Second, I want to challenge you to find out your spiritual gifts. Okay, discover them. Figure out how God has made you uniquely. You are uniquely and beautifully made. Psalm 139 tells you that. Before God even created you and even formed the world, he knew you and he longed for you to experience all of the fullness that he had placed within you. And part of that is your spiritual gifts. So we have a spiritual gifts survey online. You can get on our website and go through that. Or maybe even at lunch today, you could... If you're sitting with friends or family members, just ask the question, how do you think I'm made to bless the church or to draw people into the church? What skills or talents do you see in me that intersect a need in the world? What do you see in me? And then bless that person by speaking truth into their lives and saying, you know, what I see in you is this. I think God has designed you for this. I think this is part of your calling so that together we can discover and use and grow and see the beauty of the church. Again, remember, not just in front of the world, but in fact in front of all of the hosts of heaven watching. Will the church be the church? Will we love one another and demonstrate that we're followers of Jesus Christ? Will we be unified as Father, Son, and Spirit were eternally drawn to one another in relationship? Church, let's be that blessing to the world. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would see the value of the way that you have created us uniquely. I pray that we would learn to value one another. I pray that in humility, we would learn to seek forgiveness and grant forgiveness and become reconciled to one another. I pray, Father, that you would guard this church from disunity. I pray that you'd guard us from disunity with other churches in the community. And I pray, Father, that as you draw us together around Jesus Christ, the world would look in and say, wow, that's really beautiful. I need to be a part of that. Father, I pray that you'd send us out today to be a blessing 
To many, I pray that through us, many would come to know your son, Jesus Christ. Because that's where life is. So it's in his name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week being a blessing. And we'll see you next week.